Hello and welcome to Can I Ask You a Personal Question Uncut. This is a sister podcast, The Normal Episodes, where every fortnight we'll bring you the raw, unedited conversations with our interviewees. This week's episode is with Jim Mellon, an investment billionaire who became a well-known Brexiteer around the 2016 referendum. Nowadays, his focus is very much on business, and today he speaks to Dan and Will about his investments in the anti-aging and plant-based meat sectors. This podcast is unedited, so a warning that there may be one or two swear words at some points in the podcast. If you're enjoying our episodes, please let us know by leaving a review and a five-star rate. On to the podcast. Enjoy. Oh, fine, thanks. Uh, been a very busy day, but uh, fine, fine. So we're both feeling, probably feeling a bit flustered. Yeah, I think that's a fair, a fair description of how I'm feeling today, flustered. And yeah. it seems like you are as well because of your uh, computer problems. Uh, yeah, only slightly. Um, I'm mainly concerned... Um, well, last week when we interviewed Andy Bell, um, I recall it well. Yeah, you remember I was quite hungover, and um, yeah. I was I was afterwards I was it struck me, and I was running about town in a COVID compliant way, telling people that um, that it was one of the best interviews we'd done possibly because I was hungover, and mm. um, I think I was very brash, uh, mm. and I'm not not feeling too brash today, but I'm uh. going to try and channel that a little bit. I think that was a good that was a good technique. Yeah, a bit brash. you should have had a couple of drinks last night to prepare yourself for this. I actually had a couple of glasses of wine. <laughs> Very sophisticated. Yeah. How many glasses of wine do you drink a day? Wine or beer? Sorry, I, I can't resist asking these quick-fire questions. Ah, sorry. Uh, also, uh, do you know who he's been to today? Um, no, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, we're speaking to Jim. Yes. Um... Who is Jim? Tell he me. He is. More. He's a he's a billionaire. Oh, wow. <laughs> Tell me Maybe nothing a, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he is an investor mainly. He started off in fund management, mm-hmm. made a lot of money um, in Russia actually at the time of privatization, which I know is an area of interest for you. Absolutely. And yeah, now he's um, and he's done lots of successful investments and now he's he's a very rich man wow we've spoken to a few investors now haven't we yeah he describes himself as a visionary entrepreneur with a flair for identifying emerging global trends mm. well, i'm just gonna have a venono while i've got a few minutes sure He's um, yeah, he's quite he's quite caught up in all of the uh, the Brexit drama as well. He's oh, a good really? friend of Aaron Banks. Allegedly, uh, he introduced Aaron Banks to Nigel Farage. So he is a uh, what you might call a Brexiteer, would you say? Yeah. Although he um, yeah, he, yeah, I think he's been described as a Brexit bad boy. Oh really? Did he fund yeah. Brexit? Mm-hmm. Partly. I don't think we really have to talk too much about Brexit. He's got some really interesting investments actually. Um, one of his uh, one of his main businesses at the moment is called Juvenescence, um, and that's got nothing to do with your co- co-founder Juven. It's actually <laughs> about um, uh, a company that wants to extend people's lives 
Wow, that sounds fun. So we've been interested to talk about that. Mm. Hence why um, top of the quickfire questions this week is, um, again, a rollout. What do you believe happens when we die? Yeah, always a classic. Should become a staple. Oh, he's in the waiting room. Um, I'll give it a minute. (laughs) Want to look cool, don't we? Want you to finish your banana. Well, I haven't actually finished it, but hold on, just chewing. No props, you get your chewing done. We've still got a few minutes, well, a few seconds, I suppose. It's 59. Yeah. Um, you open my notepad. So, oh yeah, you've got it open. Yeah, yeah, so Juvenescence, that sounds a bit like Black Mirror, which will be interesting. I'm sure we can have a good good conversation about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Brexit stuff, which is kind of interesting. Not really too interested yeah. in... Yeah. Oh, like people of um, Brexit's coming back into fashion now. It's in the news again. I suppose that's true. Yeah, but then this will probably this podcast will probably go out when it's. <laughs> well, that's off. true. Okay, yeah. um, I'm admitting. Okay. Hi, Jim. Uh, hi. Who's that? Hey, it's Will here. Hi, Will. Uh, how are you? You're good. Are you the one in uh, Vancouver. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, well, Dan, nice Dan's in you. London. Yeah, hi, Dan. I'm sorry? Uh, yeah, Dan, Dan's in London. Where are you, where are you today? Uh, we're in Ibiza in Spain. Oh, wow. Nice. Very jealous. Your, how long have you been there for? You, you, uh, one of your hosts is there, is that right? Four or five months now. Mm. Um, it's a great place to be. It's completely, uh, well, I say completely open. It's more or less open, yeah. Um, I think there's a curfew from 12 till 6 in the morning, but since we're never out after 10, that's, <laughs> that doesn't really apply to us. So. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I'd be completely unaffected by that curfew. No. <laughs> um, Jim, uh, just one question before we start. Have you, um, do you don't happen to know if you've got QuickTime Player on your computer in front of you, do you? No. You don't? I've got an iPad in front of me. Ah, okay, okay, no problem. Um, we sometimes get people to make local recordings, but um, the connection sounds really good today, actually. Um, so I think it is. We've got okay. good broadband. I'm actually sitting in our home bar, but you can't oh. see any bottles. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I can show you <laughs> what wow, it looks like. That is very cool. <laughs> wow, that's nice. Yeah, Brilliant. I don't have a drink in front of me, so <laughs> <laughs> we will be having a drink soon, though. Yeah, good well, hear. it's good to hear. Six, 6 p.m. there, isn't it? So, yeah, um, it is, yeah. approaching yeah. Christmas, I think. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Um, great. So, uh, so Jim, um, how we like to start our interviews off is just going through with with entrepreneurs their um, their story, where they came from, um, and a bit about about their their youth and, and growing up, I suppose. Um, and um, going on your Wikipedia page, it, it, I mean, you've uh, you had quite a I'd say privileged upbringing. Would that be fair to say? Uh, yeah, compared to most people, I think that's true. Um, mm. I was the son. Are we starting now? Are we all? Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I was the. I am the son of a diplomat who's very much with us, um, and uh, we travelled around a lot. And in those days, being in the diplomatic service was uh, much more impressive, perhaps, than it is today, because you know you have very nice houses and. You know, everything was laid on for you, uh, and but as but but on the on the other side of it, uh, you have to go to boarding school because obviously you're moving around and the 
you know, there, there, you have to go back to the UK for schooling. So I did that. And then I went to university in England. And from that moment onwards, I, apart from one very brief three or four month session in London, I've never worked in the UK. Hmm. Did you enjoy it? Did you like boarding school? No. And my boarding school, which is called hmm. Ampleforth College, hmm. uh, is now a notorious place because Gavin Williamson was trying to shut it down, um, maybe unfairly. But um, it was the, it is the Catholic uh, sort of premier boarding school. And my father's a very Catholic person. So uh, we all had to go to Catholic schools. I was only there for four years. Mm. I, don't, I didn't like it at all. And I didn't like it not because of, of the apparent abuse that was going on there, because I didn't notice that, but because I, it was, uh, you were forced to do sports in cold weather conditions all the time. Not my bag. Mm. and uh so but i loved university that was that was a different kettle of fish yeah and so you uh you went to oxford um and what, what did you study uh ppe so by rights i should be in politics right so um but i'm not yeah um and but you kind uh, of dabbled i suppose you kind of dabbled a bit with political donations you've done it done it through that route yeah, I, they're not very big political donations compared to the donations I've made to other stuff. But um, I will never make political donations again. I mean, I honestly uh, feel that, you know, I always take an economic and nuanced view of things. But the vitriol and hatred that was generated around the referendum was um, is something I never, ever want to experience again and uh, never want to be part of. I think it's a, a sad reflection on... The reality of social media and also the bitterness and twistedness of a lot of people who uh, take a very strident position on either side of any argument. Um, it's not something I'm interested in at all. Really? Wow. Um, is, is that and is that still going on for you? Um, no, no, no. Basically, when I was um, uh, linked totally and falsely to sort of Russian financing of purported Russian financing of the referendum um, I engaged expensive lawyers and every single person who made those allegations um, has had to apologize and will if they ever make them again I will absolutely sue their asses off. What do you think it was about that topic compared to other political topics that excited so much of an emotive response? It's a very good question. I wonder if it's just that they all need a topic to focus on. I mean, at the moment, it's about whether we should be in lockdown on, uh, on COVID-19. I, I think Brexit has almost gone off the agenda, hasn't it? Um, and, uh, you know, you get the same thing in America. And I, I, I would imagine that some of it is to do with the perceived and actual inequalities in society. Um, but the reality is that the people who voted for Brexit were the poorer people in society, not the richer people. And uh, so it's a, it, you can't really make a judgment. I just think people are spoiling for a fight on a continuing basis. And it, it's, you know, it's a, and, and a lot of it is to do with social media. It's very destructive. And I do hope that they regulate it. I do hope that they tone down the, uh, the fervor and hatred that it generates and, and the you know the loss of lives that it causes because there are significant suicides associated with hatred on the internet are I'm you on social you, media but i was no? gonna ask the same i'm thing. not on any social media at all mm. unless Were you, you previously? consider whatsapp to be social media do you consider it to be social media uh, i, think I suppose it's owned yeah. by facebook 
Yeah. I'm not on Facebook. Oh, it's owned by Facebook. But, but it's, I, it's I not use really WhatsApp just to message my friends, basically. It's very convenient. Yeah. You should try LinkedIn. It's um it's very it's very good because it's uh it's so boring that it's very <laughs> unaddictive. <laughs> it's very unaddictive, I find. Well, um, I get quite a lot of new business through LinkedIn. Yeah, I, I mean, LinkedIn, LinkedIn's fine, uh, but it has no relevance to me because I'm not looking for a job. Mm. Um, and uh, to be quite honest, um, when I tried to get off LinkedIn, it was the hardest thing I could ever do. Um, it, they make it really almost impossible to get off it. Um, so I'm not on social media. I was on uh, Twitter. Um, and I think everyone was on Facebook at some point or another. But Facebook seems to be dying a death, right? So, um, uh, but Twitter, I just find to be absolutely malevolent. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, I, know, I know, obviously, that... With, well, with I had that. several hundred thousand followers at one point, you know, and, uh, uh, and then I just realised that this is, you know, it's a pathway because you wake up in the middle of the night, look at your Twitter feed and, you know, and I, I've, I've been sleeping better and actually my life is better since I have nothing to do with these bozos on both sides of the argument. Hmm. Of what um, was it? What what is a, a you know an argument that they've moved on from, and uh, you know they're, they're pursuing other forms of argumentation at the moment. Mm. Um, so, so a bit of a bit of a segue there, but but so after you uh, after you went to Oxford, you then went to work in fund management, um, and you kind of worked in different locations across the world. That's correct. Um, so I got a, I was lucky to get a job in Hong Kong with a company called GT, which is now LGT, which is a big fund management company owned by Lutz and Sines princely family. And um, the T of GT, Richard Thornton, was uh, my, uh, my boss and mentor. And uh, he sent me from Hong Kong to San Francisco. I was there for four years and I was there just at the beginning of the big technology boom. And um, it was a really remarkable period for me. And we had a fund that was, you know, just grew uh, out of, you know, just hugely successful in terms of uh, performance and also raising money. And that gave me a sort of uh, taste for fund management. Mm. Um, and so when Richard was kicked out of GT, I, I went with him and uh, started another fund management company and I owned 10% of it. And the reason I'm in this house today, which is a very different house to when I bought it 30 years ago, is because I owned 10% of that company. It was bought within four years by a German bank. I got enough money to buy the house and a, and a place in London as well, actually, funny enough. And um, so... How old were you then? Uh, oh, I was young. I was uh, maybe 27. And uh, so I, um, uh, I kind of lucked out early on that one because fund management was taking off, especially fund management in emerging markets. And that gave me and my colleagues enough money to start our uh, own business, which is a fund management company that became pretty successful, morphed into Charlemagne Capital and then Regent Pacific on the side, or the, you know, one, both were sort of divergent, but I was the biggest shoulder in both. And they, they, uh, they proved to be successful. And uh, so, but, you know, it, it uh, I, I then had enough money not to need to manage other people's money. So I just managed my own money, basically. What was it like um, investing in emerging markets back then? Is it very much the same as it is now? I, I imagine kind of the internet and the increasing access has changed it a little bit, has it? Oh, I would change it enormously, I would have thought. I, I don't understand how people can still call South Korea an emerging market when it's got, you know, it's not far off UK GDP per capita. 
Um, I'm not, not really sure there are that many emerging markets left, to be quite honest. Um, maybe less developed should be a better term for it. But uh, no, it was, it was super exciting. We obviously uh, lucked out with Russia and then the former Eastern Bloc became a big area of interest for us. Um, and, you know, I lived in Hong Kong. It was, uh, I still have an office in Hong Kong. It's an amazing place. And, um, uh, you know, I, I just saw the whole, I mean, I was, I, I, you know, just first of all, being involved in technology in San Francisco and then in the growth of Hong Kong as, a, as the financial center of China was just a remarkable coincidence as far as I was concerned. Really, I knew nothing about fund management when I got the job, but I was very, very lucky to get those two lucky breaks. I guess when people um, talk about Russia at that time now and sort of the opening up and um, the capitalization, um, it's very fashionable, you know, with spy stories and these kind of things to talk about, oh, there was corruption and um, backroom deals and that kind of thing. Did you experience it in that way or was it much like a, another emerging market to you? Uh, no, that's a good question. Uh, basically, uh, we knew that Russia was dangerous in the sense that, you know, it was physically dangerous. And when we went to Vladivostok, Jane Sutcliffe and myself to, because um, we had no idea where to go in Russia, we went to Vladivostok, which is in the Russian Far East. And of course, we were Far Eastern investors. Um, we saw nothing that we liked. Uh, the tour of the city took 20 minutes and that was going around twice. And so we got on a plane, went to Moscow, and then we I think the story is quite well known. We used the, the savings and the company, principally my money, and um, bought um, a whole load of vouchers. But we were not big players. So all the backroom dealing, all the, you know, uh, the corruption, as you call it, was done by the, the what became oligarchs. And as I understand it, and uh, I think I'm talking correctly, the first wave of privatization, which is when we got our initial stake was fairly straightforward. It was when um, Yeltsin got them to lend him money because the Russian state was crumbling in the later 1990s that these backroom deals were done. And, uh, you know, so the, the oligarchs that we're familiar with lent money to the Russian state and in exchange, they got big, big, I mean, big chunks of the, of the profitable companies, but we had no idea what we were investing in. So we, we used Credit Suisse and they basically told us that anything with gas at the end of the word or, or, or with neft in the word meant that it was probably good because it was oil and gas. Um, and Simple so we ended, up, we ended up, well, that's it. And then we ended up with a very good, it was an auction. We ended up with a very good uh, return on that money. And then we set up a fund for, and the only thing that, causes any difficulty was when um we someone in our company worked out that you could arbitrage the adrs of uh, gazprom which were selling at a very big premium to the gazprom local shares and we did a fund which was subscribed in minutes literally and then we were told by russian authorities and i'm not sure exactly who that it wouldn't be a good idea to do it so we didn't do it we cancelled it so we've never had any um anything like uh, bill browder or you know his sort of uh, experience in, in Russia. Have you read? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, they, they are endemically, well, at least they were 20 or 30 years ago, they were endemically uh, difficult markets to navigate. Um, and uh, the foreigner is always regarded as an interloper um, because, you know, they're ripping off, even though they want 
foreign capital to come in. You know, if you make a profit on it, it's not necessarily a good thing. But, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, that was a very long time ago. All, all this stuff is like murky in the past. And um, I can't remember with any clarity, uh, you know, a great deal about it because I, I always look forward and not backwards. But it was a starting point for our business. And it was a very, very useful lesson in doing business, um, mm -hmm. which has served me and I know Jane very well over the years. And um, so, so looking forward, um, what what's taking up most of your time now? Obviously, uh, Juvenescence gets uh, quite a lot, quite a lot of external attention. Is that is that one of the companies you're most, one of the investments you're most excited about at the moment? Yeah, I only have really two. I mean, look, obviously, we have a big family office, and we invest in all sorts of stuff, ranging from property to uh, utility stocks. But as far as I'm concerned, the only two things that interest me um, are absolutely unless you're a beef farmer uncontroversial and um but very positive for humanity and have attached to them since i'm after all an entrepreneur and this interview is about entrepreneurship um the prospect of significant capital appreciation and one is longevity and that's a that is a uh a, a, a consequence of my interest in biotech uh, for the last 15 years and the happy fact that I've always tried to team up with great people in my life. And so in mining, I teamed up with a great individual. Um, in, uh, you know, my property stuff, I got very good advice on that. Um, and in biotech, I teamed up with two guys who've been my, uh, my partners for the last 15 years, Greg Bailey and Deck Dugan. Deck having been the head of uh, Pfizer's drug development for a, worldwide for a long time. And those guys um, and myself, uh, have created a number of companies. One is Portage, which is listed in, uh, it's about to go on NASDAQ, um, which is a successful oncology company. Um, uh, but but uh, before Juvenescence, we started a company called Biohaven about five years ago. It's now five and a half billion dollars. And we put in for 54% of that company, $3 million five years ago. Uh, it's testimony to Greg that we've got a drug on the market for migraine. It's really, really doing very well in the US and the migraine category, which is a big category. And it's got a phase three in Alzheimer's as well, which we'll see if that works or not in the relatively near future. And um, so we decided being of a certain age and also uh, knowing that the science of longevity is catching up with the aspiration of most people to live longer and more importantly, to live uh, in a healthier state towards the end of their lives. Um, that now is the time to go into that field. And so we started Juvenescence. We own about half that company. It's valued at the most recent valuation at 750 million bucks. Um, so it's been a, another success story. Um, Greg and I are the biggest shareholders of, of the company. We brought in a lot of notable um, biotech and, and uh, technology investors into the business. And we have about 20 projects that we directly control uh, what's, the, what's the um, what's the most promising proje pro project do you think or almost advanced yeah well there are lots of promising ones but the, in terms of the most advanced the nearest to market we have a liver regeneration program which is using uh, seeded uh, hepatocytes in lymph nodes to regrow liver tissue in fail in liver failure patients for whom the only option is a liver transplant and that's now in, in uh, the FDA has approved that to go into um, sick patients in a phase two trial, which is quite far advanced, as you know. Um, and uh, that will go in the first quarter of next year into, you know, 
quite a number of uh, sick patients to see in an escalating dose um, uh, way to see if it works to regrow livers, basically. It's worked very well in animal studies. There hasn't been a single failure. And um, including in pigs and dogs, which have similar organ structures to us. Now that's a massive market. And the platform, which uses effectively, in this case, hepatocytes, but in other indications and other organs would use um, uh, different uh, types of cells, um, will regenerate thymus, and that's in animal studies at the moment, and pancreas. So the, the market potential for that is enormous. So this is in the longevity context, it's a bit like classic cars having their parts replaced and then being able to carry on uh, functioning or running. Uh, and the other one, we've got a metabolic switch, which is a ketone ester from the Buck Institute, which is the world's leading anti-aging research institute, um, which will be on the market in the US in the first couple of months of next year. And then we're gonna file eight uh, new drug applications in the next 18 months, ranging across a whole variety of uh, disease states, including obesity, cachexia, anorexia, and um, uh, mitochondrial health. And uh, so uh, we're very excited about this company. Mm. Um, we've raised now about $200 million for the company. In, in, uh, it's a company, not a fund, so it doesn't charge any fees or anything like that. And we think this could be a very large category. And the, the way I look at it is that seven years ago, when I wrote my first book on biotech, these four things didn't exist. The cure for hepatitis C, the use of AI to discover novel compounds in a very short space of time. And we can now discover novel compounds in 30 days compared to the canonical uh, three years. Uh, CRISPR-Cas9, which you're familiar with, which is the gene editing system that's kind of sweeping uh, the world and cancer immunotherapy, which again, you'll be familiar with which didn't exist seven years ago. And this year is a 200 billion US dollar sales, uh, if you want to call it industry. And next year will be 260 billion US dollars. So uh, who's to say what's gonna happen in the next seven years, but I think a lot of it will be concentrated in longevity. In other words, the idea that instead of being sick at the end of your life, being immunocompromised like people with COVID who are older and therefore died of COVID, uh, you have a more resi resilient immune system, uh, you're less frail, uh, more robust, that 15 or 16 percent of your life that's characterized by those sort of diseases, the period of morbidity, as it's known, will be compressed by stuff that we're doing and other people are doing. And ultimately, maybe we'll all live a little bit longer as a result of what we're doing as well. And our objective is in the next 10 years to add eight years to human life expectancy. So it's a pretty big ambition. And then yeah. on the other side is clean food. And I got very interested, and they're both linked, by the way. Just in, on, um, sorry, do you mind if I... No, not at all. Go ahead. You're the, you're the <laughs> such a fascinating area. But, um, but so, I mean, are you thinking for yourself that you can extend your own life by eight years? Is that, is that your kind of goal? Uh, obviously no, that, that's a good question. Uh, and obviously, you should never look at the individual because you don't know what the individual circumstances mm. are. But if it could be done on a global basis, and bearing in mind most of the stuff will be available to everyone on the planet because... The period of patent exploitation expires after typically 10 years, so it becomes generic. And the way I always describe that is that when I was young, in the 1980s, uh, ulcer drugs were the big thing. They'd just, just been developed. Um, drugs like Zantac or Tagamet, uh, Omeprazole, and they were super expensive because people died of ulcers. You know, the only solution was uh, either to drink milk or to, um, to have surgery. And... Um, 
and you know, it was a horrible thing to get was an ulcer. And now you can get walk into boots and uh, you buy them for cents basically. So um, the same thing will apply to drugs that have a, a, a pro-aging effect. Now you might ask and quite rightly, how do we know it has a pro-aging effect? So you guys look quite young. So uh, we'd have to hang around for 30 or 40 years to see or maybe 50 years or 70 years to see if it actually has an effect on whether you live longer or not. So what they use is biomarkers, which are typically biological clocks that measure whether your biological age is uh, slowing as a result of these therapies relative to your chronolo chronological age. And th that's gonna become a much, much bigger industry is the whole industry of biomarkers, et cetera. Um, because that's the way that these drugs will get into the mainstream for longevity purposes, as opposed to for a, a specific clinical indication. Um, and we're always looking for, you know, this is a commercial enterprise. We're looking for something that will have both patient impact, but also a commercial application. Mm. We're not looking for science projects. It's mm. an interesting trade-off then that it has such uh, obvious far-reaching impacts for humanity, but at the end of the day, it is also a profit-driven business. Um, with that general, you know, limitation on patents, uh, 10 years or whatever it is, do you think that, that that's a good thing um, or that it should be brought forward or that actually it discourages funding for these projects? Well, as I said, we raised $200 million. And if, if we'd said, oh, this is a charitable enterprise, no one would put any money in simple as that so there is a price for innovation and um that that's that's the cost of innovation so the first iterations of drugs or therapies will always cost more um than uh they will subsequently but since we are long-lived creatures um even i can afford to wait for 10 years before these things are in wide circulation now I, I just want to put this in perspective. The patent lives are typically 20 years, but because drugs take a long time to develop, to be trialed, et cetera, et cetera, the typical period of patent exploitation is 10 years. In other words, when you actually sell the drug and make profits right. on it. Where, where is all of this um, heading in the, the longer term? I mean, how, how far can human life be extended from, from what you've, uh, from you know, your knowledge and, and what you've seen? I have no idea. I mean, friends of mine like Aubrey de Grey think that people could live to three, four hundred, five hundred years. I would never make that um, assertion because I just don't know. Um, and whether people want to live that long is another matter. But what I would say is that um, we live in the first cohort on the planet for whom biological manipulation is possible. So uh, we know that the pathways of aging are malleable. Uh, we didn't know that 10, 20 years ago, 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, we know that in every mammalian species, these pathways can be manipulated such that there is an extension of life. Um, and uh, we don't know exactly which therapies are gonna work, but we do know that um, some of them will work. And um, you know, there'll be, there's no, not gonna be one single pill that you'll take that will keep you alive for another 30 or 40 years. There'll be an iterative process, but ultimately, I think that we will find uh, that life expectancy, which has doubled more or less in the last 120 years, um, will grow by a substantial amount over the next 30 years, but it will be because of uh, biological manipulation and not because of environmental factors, which have been the reasons why we've had a rise in life expectancy thus far. And more importantly, in some ways, 
people will have a different perception of old age. It won't be sitting in a nursing home dribbling away in your last final years. It will be or being afflicted by Alzheimer's or dementia or some terrible dread disease. It will be, uh, you know, hopefully dying in your sleep through literally old age and exhaustion uh, rather than because you're, um, you've, you've got some horrible disease that has taken you away. Mm. Interesting. And um, so, and your other, the, I think you're about to start talking about your, your other main business, um, which is to do with sustainable food. Well, my, not my other main business. I, 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 these are my uh, interests in right. business, not my uh, principal uh, source of revenue, which are much yeah. more boring. Mm. Um, so uh, I got <laughs> interested nice in to, uh, to, to be able to have both, I suppose, isn't it? to have your 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 main business and then your well your it has been 40 years of hard effort i have to say yeah. and a lot of luck thrown in um but um you know i think that the pandemic has shown that the foods uh the food supply chain which has changed dramatically since the second world war is faulty and causes a lot of problems and i just you know we know that pandemics come out of agricultural malpractice mostly in the far east uh, we know that there is an increasing amount of animal to human disease transmission. We know that 80% of all antibiotics go into farmed animals um, and that, that antibiotic overuse finds its way back into us. We become antibiotic resistant, and if we ever got a bacterial pandemic, God help us, we could be living through the Black Death, which would be a lot worse than um, what we are experiencing at the moment. $20 trillion of lost economic activity, um, you know, a few million deaths, we would be looking at complete shutdown of the whole of the world, plus uh, possibly billions of deaths. So uh, we absolutely need to do something about the food supply. Now, intensive farming started slightly before the Second World War, but really got underway. 99% of all farmed animals are uh, intensively farmed in the US, 90% in Europe. That has a massive environmental impact. I'm sure you're familiar with those features of it. You know, uh, destruction of habitat, you know, the Amazon rainforest being cut down to produce soya beans that again, then get fed to animals. Very inefficient um, converters of plant protein into animal protein. Uh, animal cruelty, which is a main motivating factor for me. Uh, emissions, about 20% of all emissions come from uh, animal husbandry. Water use, 15,000 liters of water for one kilogram of uh, beef, as an example, just all sorts of bad things happen as a result of animal farming. The world's population is increasing. They're, the developing countries are getting richer like India and China. They want to eat as much animal protein as the developed world. It's unsustainable. So something has to be done about it. Now, fortuitously, capitalism and science have come up with solutions. One is plant-based foods. We're all familiar with Beyond Burger, Impossible Burger, corn, meatless farms, etc. And they, they've been taking off like a rocket, as indeed have alternative milks and alternative dairy products. The vegetarian or... Sorry? Are you a vegan or vegetarian? No, I don't eat meat. Right. Yeah, don't eat meat. I do eat fish. Right. Pescatarian. Um, pescatarian, that's the right word for it. And... Um, no, we don't eat meat in this house. And uh, apart from the dogs, um, <laughs> six years. Six years. 
And is that when you, is that around the time when you became to become aware of the issues that you're trying to tackle with this? Um, yeah, vaguely aware. Um, but as I said, motivation is animal cruelty because I'd seen some documentaries on how these animals are produced, which is the way that the farmers describe it or the, the companies that make these foods describe it. And it's not very pretty. And the people, more people watch those sort of videos, more people would give up meat. Um, uh, but the fact is that, you know, this industry will only take off um, if the taste and texture and price is equivalent. So my book is, my new book is called, do you know about my new book? No. Published yesterday. Oh, great. I'm just going to show you the cover. Hang on. Better move on to the uh, quick time soon, I suppose. Quick fire. Here we are. Ah. This is a something I wrote in the lockdown, and it's a guide to what I call the new agrarian revolution. It's um, it covers every single company involved in this space. Um, we're not so interested in the plant-based stuff because there's not very much defensible IP, but in the um, cellular agriculture space, if you're familiar with that, where you grow food in labs, and particularly meat, uh, fish, and materials such as cotton and leather, um, there are about 30 companies that are investable. And so I, I interviewed all the leaders of those companies, and, and this is the book about it. And the book is forwarded by the president of the Good Food Institute, which is the leading charity and advocacy in this area. And the proceeds, the net proceeds of this book go to that particular charity which is great um so um uh so could, could you tell you us know, the name of the book again so we've captured it moo's law so it's, it's a riff off moore's law <laughs> i said to you earlier on that i thought that you know this industry would take off as soon as the price taste and texture were equivalent or better than the conventionally farmed meats and i call that griddle parity which <laughs> is the um you know when the, the price gets down to and I think in terms of plant-based meat, we're about one year away from that. And in terms of uh, cell ag meat, we're two to three years away. The first uh, product authorized in the world, which is made from cell techniques, uh, was authorized in Singapore last week, which was Eat Just's chicken product. And uh, we expect the fish product from Blue Nalu to be authorized by the end of next year by the FDA in the United States. So this is very, very close. Every one of these companies has a prototype. They're, they're, they're not you know, thinking of something they can make, they actually have it. It's just a question of scale up, hence the, the phrase Moose Law. And this will be a very big industry. So meat around the world, just meat is 1.4 trillion. It's about the size of the Spanish economy. In 10, 15 years time, about the size of the UK economy. Uh, so it's a very big prize for those who can get it right. But also people are producing leather as an example. Um, with, in, in, and it's there and it's got commercial contracts already in labs. So we're, we're in a major revolution using biotech techniques to produce materials and food. And uh, Rethink X is London based uh, think tank, very well thought of, thinks that in 10 years time, uh, 2030, 50% of the meat eaten in the world will be non-conventional meat will be either plant-based or cell ag meat so the whole 
industry will be completely disrupted. And, and the way you can look at it is that it's, uh, it's on the same trajectory as, um, as alternative milk. So both of you will be very familiar with almond milk, soy milk, oat milk, etc. If you've gone into Starbucks 10 years ago, they didn't really exist. Now, that, now most people have those sort of alternative milks. Uh, the two largest dairy companies in the United States have gone bust as a result recently. So the days of conventional farming are over or are shortly to be over. It will be a slow process to begin with and then a very fast process. Um, and it can't, Jim, it can't come too quickly. I feel like we could talk about this all day, but um, we are kind of eating up the time quite quickly. And one thing I must ask you is, so a lot of our audiences, um, entrepreneurs, perhaps at an earlier stage of their career or people who are considering starting a new business, um, we wanted to ask you, have if you had to boil down a few words of advice to people in that position, what would you say to them? Well, I, the, three, the three words are curiosity, be very curious about everything, uh, and then hone in on something that you can, you feel that you might have a personal edge in. Uh, be adaptable. So when we start a new company, you know, we have an idea what it might do, but almost invariably it changes. Um, so don't just be rigid about one, you know, thing. So as an example, if you're, you know, thinking about getting into the mask making business uh, now, you might consider the fact that in a year's time, there'll probably be no demand for masks uh, or will be a much lesser demand than there is today. But the idea that you are thinking about starting something that makes something has put you into the entrepreneurial class just immediately. You are already an entrepreneur. And then the last thing, so we've got curiosity, adaptability, and the last thing is application. You, you know, there are some people in this world who are absolute geniuses like Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates and uh, but they do work very hard. But uh, there are some people for whom things just fall into their lap and they can, uh, you know, they don't really need to work very hard. But most of us have to work really hard. So um, if you don't, if you're not prepared to work hard and work, burn the midnight oil, then don't become an entrepreneur because it won't work. Um, I just have one more question, Jim, and um, before we, we finish off with a few quick fire questions, um, but I have just, just one question before that, which is um, you were saying earlier that you kind of want your big deal the first big deal really came off and you were able to buy your your home uh, when you were 27 i think you said um yeah were there any, 27 or 28 had, i can't remember exactly yeah okay um what have you had any particularly low points in business or is it have you have you always been quite quite comfortable quite quite well off and and you know bit growing growing um that seems to be the, the, the way that things have gone for you but have there been any moments where where you've really struggled and just um, things have gone really wrong for you in business. Oh, well, things go wrong all the time, of course. You know, we've right. got 300 companies <laughs> registered underneath our holding company, and some of them have just been, you know, like they're dormant or they just haven't gone nowhere. Um, but uh, in terms of have I worried about whether I can, you know, eat my next vegetarian burger or whatever, <laughs> um, or if I can pay, uh, you know, for this and that, the answer is no. And by the way, I have a rule that I don't borrow money. So even though we have a, my biggest asset is in Germany and it's a uh, large property portfolio, we, we have no debt, none, even though it's property. Well, I don't, don't believe in borrowing. Okay. I'll uh, okay, lend, so I'll never fire. borrow. Oh, okay. Uh, so our quick fire questions. Um, the first one we've only asked once before, but I thought it was quite a good one for you given your uh, juvenescence business, which is what do you believe happens when we die? 
oh, well, I think that if you've led a good life, you'll go to heaven. Okay. Hence my Catholic training. <laughs> Training's obviously worked well. Um, so I, I don't think you become a caterpillar or you become nothing. I, I actually believe in uh, the concept of God. So first question. Okay. Uh, the second one is, if you were the prime minister for one day and you could achieve one reform or change, uh, what would it be? Oh, that's a great question. Give me an idea. How would you answer that? <laughs> that's, I'm on the other side. Well, of we can tell no, you it how, doesn't matter. Uh... <laughs> I'm asking you, how would you answer it? Give me an inspiration for how should I answer uh, So Martin, Martin Gilbert um, of Aberdeen Asset Management told us that he would... He's a friend of mine, by the way. What? Great. Well, he said he'd borrow a lot of money. He'd <laughs> yeah, start, so it might be borrowing different. lots of money, which presumably <laughs> wouldn't be your advice. Well, he could borrow it on behalf of the government. That's a very different thing. Yeah. And I think he'd okay. be right in that respect because interest rates are all-time lows. And the problem <laughs> yeah. is the government's well, exactly, not very exactly good said, allocating yeah. funds. You know, they, they, they're very wasteful and they're not very productive in the way in which they invest it. But maybe if Martin was in charge of it, he'd do a good job. But, uh, okay, so if I was in charge, I would... Um, I'd cut the number of MPs from 630 at the moment down to 100 and pay them five times more than they currently get paid to attract people who actually are not doing politics because it's uh, failed rock stars, you know, alternative but because they are highly competent and they, they're worth the money that we would be paying them, which would be a lot more. Okay. Singapore has that, has that view mm. and they're very successful. Interesting. Um, who do you uh, prefer just in general, Donald Trump or Boris Johnson? Oh, I don't, uh, absolutely Boris Johnson, okay. 100%. Uh, do you prefer Nigel Farage or Aaron Banks? Uh, I, I, I just, I, I don't want to get involved in that conversation. Okay. I, I, I don't, I, I think they're both nice enough to have a drink with, but I don't want anything to do with their politics ever again. <laughs> they're drawn <laughs> like moths to a flame for publicity and it's not my style. Okay. Is it true you introduced them? Uh, sorry, that's a good question. It, it seems to be a, an urban myth, but Nigel, yeah, asked me, <laughs> Nigel asked me if I would introduce them to Aaron Banks because... Aaron Banks had been, I think he, I, I think Aaron Banks had been described as a nobody because he gave £100,000 to the Conservative Party and then he got very upset about it. And Nigel read that and asked if he could be introduced to Aaron Banks, who I knew because of our joint shareholding, not joint shareholding, but individual shareholdings in, a, in an Isle of Man based business, which Aaron is no longer part of, by the way. Mm. So you did introduce them? Uh, at the, it wasn't like I. Oh, let yeah. let me yeah, introduce yeah. you to. It was at the request of one of them. Yeah. Okay. Um, next question now. Yes. Uh, do you have a favourite historical figure or hero? No. Good answer. Because you're looking forward. Looking forward. Mm? Because you're looking forward. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure everyone says Churchill or. I don't know what they say, Louis Pasteur or something, but I don't. I, there's not someone I, you know, sort of read the collective works of and get inspired by. Okay. And uh, final question. What, where, what is your favourite place? That is a really good question. And being the son of a diplomat and being itinerant and nomadic, 
um, I don't actually have a favorite place, but if I was confined to barracks and I had to live in one place, um, I think it would be the Isle of Man, actually. Hmm. We were there for four months before we came here and it's really, we like it a lot. It's very peaceful and lots of good walks and, uh, you know, it's, um, it's beautiful as well. So yeah, most people wouldn't say that, but I think the Isle of Man. Okay, great. We'll have to visit, won't we, Dan? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Always <Perfect>. welcome. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, Jim, well, thank you very great, much. Great questions, by the way. Well done, guys. Yeah, very entertaining. Very good. Um, can was the could you hear the drilling in the background on mine? I tried to mute when it nope. was on. Oh, good, good. No, I didn't hear anything. Really... Could you hear the man upstairs in my apartment going, "Oh, la, 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 <laughs> no, la, I didn't hear anything either, which is good. Oh, uh, good, yeah, yeah. It was an interesting interview. Yeah, he's pretty fun, isn't he? Yeah, uh, I actually really liked how he was quite liberal with his. That's a good question. There was kind of oh. five or six moments, and I each time I still got that little. Oh, thank you. Yeah, see, I told you, it's impossible. It's impossible to ever get past it. But mm. also, what was quite good about him, um, despite despite the fact our, our PR interviewee told us that um, when people do that, it's because they've been trained to, um, as mm. I suspected, to, to deflect. He kind mm. of went, that's a great question. I'm going to answer it straight away. And he actually did. Yeah, yeah. It, I guess it was still a technique because it really made me feel positive. Yeah. But a nice technique. Yeah, wait. You listen. You, when you listen back to the to the podcast, you'll realise that he didn't answer any of those questions at all. <laughs> I just think he did. It's like putting a spell on you. Um, yeah, but no, he's, he's a charming guy, isn't he? Is yeah. Interesting. The um, I always think it's really interesting when you speak to. Well, maybe maybe it's him in particular, but on the Brexit stuff, he's obviously, um, you know, he's just seen as this extremely shady character among a lot of you know uh, uh, among very very anti-brexit people mm. and when you speak to him he's actually extremely open about it he just doesn't want anything to do with that ever again i don't yeah. want anything to do with Nigel Farage it's just you know it's just kind of yeah he obviously no not obviously but you get the impression maybe he regrets that he's possibly best known for that and he really wants mm. to be better known for making people live longer lives and definitely and definitely yeah yeah, it sounds like he's had a rough ride, and you're right. It definitely wasn't the message. There wasn't the view of himself that he that he had. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, charming guy. Looking forward to visiting him in the Isle of Man. Yeah, well done on securing an invitation there.